Episode 10. Double figures for the big run and welcome back. Our next guest has taken his 30-year career in music, design and fashion and poured it all into creating his very own running clothing brand. British-based Saw launched in 2015 and has been pushing the boundaries of what is technically capable within a running garment. I sat down with its founder and we talk all about the journey of creating his own running brand and why if you're ever going to DJ at a wedding, make sure you pack a big bag of cheesy records. Ladies and gentlemen, please put it together for Tim Saw. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Like, um, We'll get to Saw a little bit later, but I'd, I'd love to sort of rewind a little bit back and look a little bit about your career and sort of see if we can touch on some some key moments in your career that may sort of give some inkling to how you've come to where to, to finding uh, founding Saw uh, and the sort of the 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 influences and the sort of style markers that Saw seems to seems to have. I'd love to love to begin with um, your interest in design. Where do you think that started for you? Where do you think where do you think that passion was ignited for you? Um, being a, a precocious builder of Airfix model kits when I was about seven or eight, I think, probably. Oh, really? Uh, model kits? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I think if I look back, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems that was the point where the idea of making something, you know, be able to create something, although a kit in this case, be able to make something and make it with your own hands and paint it and all of that stuff. So that that concept of bringing something in, you know, something from nothing into something, mm. I would say that's where it first came from. But it didn't realize when I was at school, I didn't really have any concept of, you know, design as a career because that wasn't really something my school were interested in. It was a, you know, it was a, a minor Catholic private school and they're interested in sciences or the humanities you know, design and creativity, that was something for, you know, people who weren't at Catholic minor public schools. Mm. Um, so when I first moved to London, um, I, because I had this precocious talent for building Airfix model kits, I got a job in an architectural model makers. And that was, uh, and that was when it's like, oh, well, you can actually make money out of doing this. So that's when the idea that this could be a career sort of first took root and also the idea then the idea that you could you didn't have to start with a kit you could make whatever was in your head mm. if you like. and that revelation revelation that you know you can make what's in your head that was very exciting and that's what then launched me really onto into my design career and it's been a a series of kind of serendipitous um events my career so when i was doing the architectural model making. I met someone who was doing model making for TV commercials. At that time, all TV commercials were, all the special effects for TV commercials were real time. There's no digital. Mm. Um, so I fell into doing that and that had a much more uh, extensive workshop facilities. And so I started making furniture for my flat just because of all these amazing techniques. The really interesting thing about the, the kind of special effects thing is you were given a brief, but you weren't given any way to get to the result that you wanted that was required rather. So the route that you took was all, you had to make that up totally. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I'll give you an example. We, uh, there was a TV commercial, which was for a, a non-dairy 
product and they wanted a close-up of a pat of butter with a knife coming down and taking a scoop off the top. Mm. Now, that all had to be done at 10 times life size to be able to get a close-up from it with a refrigerated in a surface in this pat of butter and an articulated surface underneath the pat of butter so it would curl a beautiful scoop of butter. So that was really interesting problem solving. And, and I think there's a lot of analogies in, in what I do with running clothing about, you know, what's the problem? There's no, you don't have any preset route to get there. You've just got to solve it. Mm. I started making furniture and I was, again, another moment of serendipity. I was asked by Neville Brody, who was the best graphic designer of the time, mm. still is one of the greats to design his studio. And this was when he was doing the Face and Arena magazine. So I did the interior design of his studio. And that was at the same time that Apple Mac was shipping the first computers out to designers around the world to try and get them to shift onto um, computer-aided design. Which, were these the were these the, uh, the iMacs with the, or the square box ones? Tiny little square boxes. Oh, basically. right, okay. So when it was in its infancy, right, right. Really early days, yeah. This was in the, um, in the early 80s. Mm. So I set up an interior design business with Neville and his partner, Fway. Uh, we did some shops and we did his uh, exhibition that was traveling around the Victorian Albert Museum, Congress Hall in Berlin. So we did a few kind of international exhibitions. And at the same time, I started tinkering on these computers that were in the office to, to teach myself the basics of graphics. Mm. Was um, this then, was this, because you're talking a lot about you were working in Airfix models and working in the adver uh, adverts and stuff like that. Was this then working with Neville? Was that your first time where design was starting to meet with like artistic endeavor as well? Yes. Was that when the concept of like, this could be an art form was starting to also ready or, or, or had you already done some previous work with art or was, well, was this the first time it was starting to begin? When I'd started making furniture, which is what led me to being commissioned to doing Neville Studio, that was the first time where, oh, I can make what's in my head and I can make something that's unique as well. So mm. that, that was the first time when the kind of, you know, the artistic endeavor, if you like, was manifested. And then going to Neville's, which was, you know, the, one of the creative hubs in London at the time, was a complete eye-opener. There was this amazing stuff going on and his fantastic energy, and Neville's a very charismatic man, and charismatic designer, um, who was very open to newness. So that really gave me a massive turbocharge into, you know, being creative and, um, you know, doing the sky's the limit, essentially. Was there a sense of him, was there a slight men him mentoring you slightly and sort of challenging you and provoking you to push you sort of further within your craft? Or what was the kind Actually, of dynamic between the two of you? <laughs> Well, he was, yeah, he, I mean, the, the dynamic was a little bit, when what, I mean, we were doing the furniture stuff, we were kind of equals because he hadn't really done furniture interior design. So we were sort of equals. On the graphic side, he had a team of very uh, well-trained, very creative graphic designers. And I was tinkering around on an Apple Mac, just doing kind of random stuff. And I think that probably didn't, <laughs> didn't go down quite so well, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> were they were they doing their graphic work? Was it very much analog what they were doing, and you yes, were kind of? It was all, it was all electric, not electroset. It was all done on PMT machines, cut on artboards, right. copied. Yeah, and Neville's original early work was all Xerox and PMT machine, and it's brilliant because of it. It has a quality that's very different to how you what you would get from a computer. 
um, and great and great for it. So are you trying to advocate for this Mac then in the corner, just being like, this is the future, guys, come on. Like, have you seen what this thing can do? Yeah, well, yeah, the, the Mac had, the Mac is is both, uh, you know, a, a seductive tool because it's very easy. You can get something out of it very easily. The reverse of that is just because you can get something out of it very easily doesn't mean it's good. So, so you know, there's all this new... It's like when any new kind of um, medium comes along, I suppose you could call computer-aided design or digital design a new medium. You know, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. You think, wow, this is amazing. Look at all this stuff you do with scanners and I'm gonna scan my face and all of that stuff. Um, it's only really with a bit of, with, you know, not a bit, a lot of hard graft. You then start working at how to get good stuff out. Now, Neville, because he was a brilliant designer, got amazing stuff out straight away. You know, his early, his early Mac work is just phenomenal. Some of the best design work I've ever seen and still, still think that's true. Mm. Um, for me, I had to go and retrench and do, you know, two years of jobbing graphic design to, to learn the basics to then start being able to get good stuff out of it. Mm. So yeah, that was, that was definitely as far as, you know, the, the birth of my serious creativity, if you like, being at Neville Studio, that was absolutely there. Um, and again, you know, through serendipity, I met a lot of very interesting people and that opened doors at later stages in my career. Because you pivoted after that, because you set up your own company after that, didn't you? Which was like a, a music consultancy company. So where was the, where was the pivot that went, went in that direction? Because you're a bit of a polymath in terms of the kind of stuff that you've done leading up to Saw. Yeah, there's, I mean, I'll talk about what the common theme is because there's definitely a common theme. And again, that's, that's only really visible with hindsight, but there is mm. one. I, so graphic design is brilliant, but you, you design something, you send it to the client, the client sends it back, you design it a bit more, it gets printed, and that, that whole, the creative process is very attenuated. It's very drawn out. Mm. Yeah. It can be a real pain sometimes. And again, through a, through a, through a happy coincidence, uh, a friend of mine asked me to DJ in the back room of his club. Little did I know, but this friend was running the, the most happening clubs in London at the time, a guy called Graham Ball. And the back room of his club was, it was a club called Babes in Toyland in the 90s, early 90s. And that was an immediate success. I mean, it was packed with people. Fantastic, you know, the most fashionable nightclub in London for what that's worth. And I was playing in the back room with one turntable and I just pulled out all the records that I used to love as a teenager. So I was playing Led Zeppelin and, and a lot of rock music, which no one was playing at that time. And so I think just by kind of novelty factor, playing on one turntable and playing rock records, this gay and piggybacking on the back of this very trendy club, mm. it suddenly gave me an instant DJ career. And, and what was brilliant about it and what I loved about it and what I still love about it is you put on the right record, you make the right mix, you make the right selection, you get immediate feedback. Mm. And that's extremely seductive. That's very, 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 uh, that's very Moorish. So, and as you know, compared to the graphic design process, which I found quite slow and, you know, not very immediately satisfying, if you like, I fell in love with DJing. And off the back of doing this club, I was, booked in a lot of clubs. And then I was asked to look after the music at the Met Bar when it first opened. And the Met Bar, Metropolitan Hotel, the Met Bar was the scene of late 90s excess, I would guess. I would say it was the, it was the very pinnacle of kind of new labor, late 90s excess. It was in a uh, 
boutique hotel, which was the first boutique hotel in London on Park Lane, run by a woman called Christina Rong, who's a big hotelier and fashion woman out of Singapore. Uh, and the Met Bar was Kate Moss's and Liam Gallagher's and all of those 90s people. It was their hangout. And I was asked to do the music for it. And I walked into this hotel. No, at that point, you know, a, a boutique hotel, a, a fashionable hotel, didn't exist in London. There was the Dorchester and a Ritz and all of those very traditional, you know, ornate high service hotels. But going into a hotel where every the staff uniforms were beautiful, the staff were beautiful, everything was beautifully designed, the furniture was beautiful, but the music was crap. And because I'd come from a DJ background and also had this design background, it was like a bolt from the blue. These boutique hotels are going to become a thing. Mm. And if they're going to become a thing, they're going to need someone to design their music for them in the same way that they've got someone to design their um, staff uniforms and their furniture and their wall decor and their menus. And it was you know, a complete moment of revelation, uh, which was also true. So I was asked to do the music there and look after all the DJs there. And then I asked... So in terms of that, sorry to jump in, I'm just fascinated sure. by... So you're you're curating the music for the hotel. So, with this, so you, when you're putting together that playlist, I suppose if you're putting constructing a playlist for 24 hours within a hotel, are you considering sort of the music that's on in the background in, in the morning when breakfast is being served or what's going on sort of at, at lunchtime or what kind of ambience you're trying to create as you move towards the, the evening and perhaps sort of more livelier hours of the hotel? Is, are you trying to paint a, a musical picture over a period of 24 hours? That's what you were kind of doing with your curation. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's quite a, a, you know, sort of a, a usual concept now. At that time, it absolutely was an usual concept. You know, you would have the idea, you'd have background music, piped music, that sort of lobby music that we kind lobby of, music. yeah. The yeah. idea of actually treating it uh, in from as a kind of design form, if you like, mm. no one was doing it. And this, these, these hotels and bars were absolutely the place where they had the money to, to afford to pay for it, if you like, which is obviously a, uh, an issue. And also the mindset that they wanted a very beautiful controlled environment. So this, this fitted in with this synced with their picture of what they thought hotels should be about. And were so, there specific tracks that you would like earmark for specific things that you were trying to absolutely trying yeah, to yeah, target absolutely. for like yeah. evening or stuff in the morning? Was there sort of a particular genre or an artist or something that you would zero in on for a specific goal that you were trying to create? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it wasn't really, I've, I've never DJed one genre and I've never programmed music to one genre. I, I, absolutely mix all genres you know mm. one genre of music all the time is, is dull as dishwater mm. but you for sure you 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 know I work by mood and it's you can be an up tempo you can be down tempo and that can work both in the evening and the morning if the mood is right so it's very much about what the right mood is and how you mix those different moods together and if you do it well and it's and it's really not easy to do well it's very very easy to do badly uh, it's, it's not easy to do well. If you do it well, then it's brilliant. Um, is, is there a sense if you're doing it well that they almost it's imperceptible the the effect that the music is having to a certain extent because they're enjoying yeah. themselves so yeah. much that if yeah. you were to drop an absolute clangor, they'd be like, "What's this music?" Is yes. it is, that's the kind of effect you're going for? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean more so in the morning. In the you know in the morning you want 
you don't, you know, people are in a, a sensitive state, they've just got up. So you want things that aren't going to impinge too much, but it can't be bland. You know, through to the evening, afternoon and evening, then you can be much more adventurous and you have to be a little bit, there has to be some grit in the oyster, if you like. It can't all be too much the same. It can't, everything can't be too lovely the whole time. There has to be a bit of dissonance in there, if you like. But that balance is hard to achieve. It's easy for DJing because you can read the crowd uh, and you can, you know, you can do it spontaneously <laughs> to pre-programming it is hard. And, you know, I charged a lot of money for it and uh, I did it well for a number of years. It got very boring after six or seven or eight years. And in the end, I'd much rather have silence, frankly, now, because it's become such a, a kind of cliched thing. <clears throat> but at the time, it was something really new and I got a lot of work doing it. And it was really interesting. And do you, do you still DJ? Is that still part of your life? A, a tiny bit. I've become, as I've become older, I've become much less tolerant of crap requests. <laughs> zero, zero sympathy. <laughs> I love it. I'm not playing that, not in a million years. <laughs> Just the normal answer, <laughs> so definitely sort of no wedding DJs, or you'd never been sort of drafted in to do that kind I, of thing. I have absolutely done that in the past. You, um, right. I don't know how much detail you want to go into. I've got some some real horror stories there. But, uh, oh, go on, go on, please. I, 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 if this is not encroaching too much on your time, but if you've okay. got any delicious stories, I'd, I'd love to so, hear them. So the best, the best wedding horror stories. People, people uh, have difficulty if they see a DJ who's playing a certain type of music to a crowd very well if you're a good DJ you can pretty much play within reason any sort of music to any crowd if you play it well you can create a great atmosphere mm. um, and at this time I was playing a lot of mostly kind of jazz dance stuff I guess this was 98 99 something like this and a woman rushed up and I love what you're playing. Come to my wedding, come and DJ. And at this stage, I hadn't done very many weddings. So I didn't know, obviously, for a wedding, just ignore everything anyone says and take a massive bucket load of cheese. So I took my, my, my jazz dance record boxes and the wedding was in a chateau in the middle of Belgium, like miles from anywhere. Got there after a pain journey with local taxi driver trying to find a place couldn't find a place for hours and he got there at, at the last minute they were having the wedding supper and normally i would expect to go and you know sit on the table with someone you know with the minor guests and they went oh no go and eat with the servants in the kitchen well <laughs> which put it off to a bad foot anyway that after supper uh the host came down and said okay let's start with abba because abba's absolutely our favorite and keep with the ABBA for a while and let's just see where it goes. And, you know, no backup, absolutely no backup except jazz dance. So that was a very, very, very painful four hours of the, the bride and groom absolutely hating me, thinking I was deliberately trying to stymie their wedding. So, yeah. Because obviously before, before the age of streaming and Spotify where you could just get streaming, anything. CDs, no, it was all vinyl. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what that did you do? Did you just just play the play what you had and just kind of take the flag? I played, yeah. 
<laughs> brilliant. Oh, brilliant. That's so funny. I do I do love the idea as well of you, you know, having been thrusted to eat with the servants that you, you may have yeah. rebelled as well and just maybe put on like white noise or something for the evening. Well, yeah, I kind, kind of, of felt like it. I thought I have so I did think that was pretty uh anyway. So the moral of that story, I have played weddings since then and always take a, a massive bucket load of cheese with me because <laughs> it's gonna oh. be needed at some point. Always have the ABBA in reserve. Exactly. Um, Brilliant. Oh, hilarious. So, so you did that, your music consultancy for sort of six, seven years, started to grow a little bit, sort of a bit sort of tired of it. You kind of got what you'd needed out of that sort of creative endeavor. So what was the next kind of shift for you then? Because there was a menswear brand as well before Saw Running. You did a, a whole menswear line. Was that straight after the music consultancy or was there was there something in parallel? So I was I was still DJing and loving it. And this is mm-hmm. where the, the kind of the sport bit comes in. I'm still in the music consultancy and, and still loving that at that time. But I'd always, you know, fashion had always had this kind of siren call to me, I guess the music business and DJing had given me enough money to, to, to indulge my, uh, my uh, whimsical desire to, uh, to get involved in fashion. And again, because, and you know, again, looking back at my career, it's, it's all these connections actually have made perfect sense. I've been doing a lot of catwalk music. So I met a lot of fashion designers. And so I knew I could get the connections to get stuff made, you know, I knew I could get the connections to get a product out the door, if you like. Hmm. So I launched the menswear label in when in parallel with doing the music business and DJing still. In uh, terms of prior to that then, because you knew people who could manufacture the the clothes, but would, did you, because you had uh, obviously a background in de- de- design, but did you school yourself in, you know, in construction of, of the, of, 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 of the clothes or in, in individual fabrics, or was there like a, was there a crash course that you had to do prior to that? Or is that something you kind of learned as you, as you built the brand? Yeah. The crash course was the first two collections. basically. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's, I mean, it fashion is as far as the, the technical skill set required is by far the most demanding of any of the, the jobs I've ever done because you have, you know, on one hand you have fit, and pattern and all of that. And that's super complex to do it really well. That's really, really complex. And then you have the kind of whole fabric world and understanding how that meets with pattern. And then you have third party manufacturing. And so you have all these different kind of moving parts. Oh, and of course you have the creative bit to start with to think about what, you know, what, what, what you want it to look like in the, at the first place. So it was extremely hard and I completely underestimated how hard it was. I just thought I could go and do it, no problem. I, I, I knew what I, you know, I knew I had a creative vision to do it. I had no grounding in the technical side and I massively underestimated it. But I suppose in a way, quite similar to what you were talking about earlier with, with the adverts as well, where you were kind of given a target, but no kind of path about how to get there. So I suppose the target was what the garment was or what the collection was in your mind. And then you kind of just figured it out <laughs> as, as, you, as you went. I mean... <laughs> That takes some takes some some courage, man. I mean, what, so where so you knew you wanted to do a collection. So what was your first? What was the first kind of groundwork that you started to lay then when you were starting to build your first collection? So I, and which now lots of people are doing. So I bought. So I wanted the first collection to be kind of rockabilly inspired, and this was two thousand and five, I guess. 
something like that, 2005. I wanted to be rockabilly inspired. And there was something at that time about that kind of rockabilly 50s, rockabilly clothing that, that seemed suddenly like it was after it being, you know, the most unfashionable thing you could possibly imagine, suddenly seemed like it had some resonance again. So I bought a lot of late 50s, early 60s mint suits off eBay in America, um, took them apart, reconstructed them, and then worked out how to copy them and to, to give it this kind of contemporary spin. And because I'd done it this way, the whole collection came out looking completely unlike it would if it had come out of a fashion college. And because of that, Liberties in London bought the first collection. Um, and obviously that's a, a serious door, as they say in fashion. Um, and because I was in Liberties in the first collection, suddenly a lot of other people took notice of it. But it, that the only reason Liberties bought it is because it looks so different from anything else out there. Because I'd taken this route of buying up old clothes, taking the bits, looking at them, putting them back together. It's kind of like that airfix model approach, you know, of, of you, as, you as a younger boy, kind of like having the pieces in front of you and just figuring out how it's gone together and, and not approaching it from like a someone who may have gone to a fashion college or have done like a, you know, costume construction course in like Bournemouth or, or, or something, something like that. So like wildly successful for your first kind of swing, like amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was, and which again was, it was a bit like working with... Uh, going into Neville's studio, it was a bit like first collection. Oh, that's gone brilliantly, great, this is easy. This is really simple then. And in fact, then the next two collections did okay, but they didn't do brilliantly. And it was only about after I think collection four where I really started to get a handle on finding the right manufacturer, being able to have, being able to at least take a view on whether a pattern was wrong or right, even though I was still working with third party pattern cutters finding the right fabric manufacturers, understanding how to design a collection which, you know, consisted of a lot of different elements to it. I suppose uh, just, just jumping in there with that thing sure. about patterns. So obviously not being well-versed in, in the fashion world. So were you, were you drawing what you wanted the pattern to be and then handing it over to the third party so that they could put together the technical aspects of the pattern that then would be cut and that's why they weren't necessarily meeting what your expectations yes. of the design were so it's again it's that back to that creative process with the adverts again where you're kind of having to filter through different parties was that a bit of a, a frustration yeah, for the process exactly so if you're if you're if you have a, a kind of picture in your head of and then you can you can draw it but with fashion it's quite hard to draw the precise fit of a garment you can draw the mood of a garment but it's very hard to draw the precise fit if you're then handing on to a third party, they're putting their interpretation on that drawing and therefore you get a garment back. Now, my initially, my pattern cutting wasn't good enough to be able to work out what needed to be done to get it to fit like I wanted it to fit, mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, generally okay. I think that's probably true of a lot of fashion designers when they first start out. You know, you, you evolve and you understand and you grow the business and, uh, you know, you, you grow your, your, your skill set. I, and also it can be a strength. And I think, and I've, I've seen this in music, you know, there's lots of bands who try and copy someone's sound and they copy it incorrectly. And they come up with something really interesting, much more interesting than a straight copy. And because I try to, try to make something not 
and there was a, a number of errors, if you like, in the process. Well, the end result was always something quite unusual and quite different from what was out there. So it did get attention and I got taken on by uh, a fast track mentoring organization called the Center for Fashion Enterprise, which was very closely connected with um, the British Fashion Council. And then I was showing at London Fashion Week. I won, <laughs> I don't even think that the British Fashion Council know this. So I was awarded the BFC New Gen Award against two and a half thousand of the, of the most promising students, MA students and BA students. I won that at 50. Um, at the age of 50. So, uh, <clears throat> which, I, which, you know, that I thought was uh, was something to pat myself on the back about, basically. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And, like, I just love the idea that there, there's not, I love the idea that there's not always a defined route when it comes to something like fashion or, or creating stuff that it isn't linear, that you have to, you have to have gone to this particular school, you have to have done this particular course, or there's a particular approach, like the fact that it can be disrupted and through that disruption, you know, really interesting mistakes, you know, in inverted commas can happen. So alongside this, you know, this success as a fashion designer, where was, where was fitness, I suppose? Where was, where was your interest in fitness? Cause you were a cyclist before you were a runner. Is that right? So yeah, the, the DJing, which, which, as I said, I love the DJing and it was, it's, it's very Moorish in every, every possible sense is also a, a very unhealthy lifestyle. And I knew, I just knew I had to get fit. I just knew, you know, I absolutely knew I had to get fit. If I didn't, I was going to get sucked into this lifestyle that was really, you know, not going to, it wasn't going to end well, basically, mm. in the long run. Was there a particular and, moment where, was there a switch where you were just like, this, this, is, this is enough, this is doing me damage, or, or was it a gradual thing? No, it was more a gradual process. And I'd always, I'd ridden a lot of, you know, I think I was cycled into primary school at the age of seven, I think, and that was kind of three miles away. So I'd always liked riding bikes. So I took up cycling, bought a posh bike without, posh race bike without really knowing what to do with it. Was cycling around Regent's Park and got in the chain gang in Regent's Park and started training seriously and crit racing uh, and racing with teams. And I'd hated sport as a, as a youngster. I mean, I really hated it. I did everything I could do to avoid it, apart from riding my bike to primary school. And suddenly this world of doing stuff with your body, as opposed to doing all this creative stuff with your head, doing stuff with your body was, it was a complete revelation. But cycling, I was getting frustrated because of the training volume required. <clears throat> so I thought I'd move to running thinking it was gonna be less training volume. Mm. And <laughs> we both smile, exactly. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Oh, if only, if only, gosh. <laughs> and, and again, loved that. I mean, what I what I really loved about running was, you know, with cycling, you can be clever, you can sit in the wheels, you can, you know, you can finish in any any halfway decent club cyclist can finish in the top fifty of pretty much any race if you just sit in the wheels and, and ride clever. Whereas running, if you ain't fit, you ain't going anywhere, basically. Um, and I and I loved that truthfulness of it. And I love the simplicity that you could get out of the door and just put your trainers on. You didn't have to get in your get on your bike, get your bananas and your map in the back pocket and all of that stuff. Mm. Like I did with cycling. So I guess I started running certainly seriously when I was doing fashion um, and just when kind of DJing was tailing off. And also it was 
it was, you know, I would say I probably got a somewhat addictive personality and it was suddenly this, this very positive addiction. You know, you do this thing you want to do more of and it's great for your mental health and it's great for your physical health and it gets you out in nature. And, you know, there's, there's very little downside apart from the old injury now and again. Mm. Um, and that was, was absolutely, as I said, it was a complete revelation. And, you know, still is a revelation every time I go out for a run going, how brilliant this is, even if I'm feeling crap and my legs are tired and, you know, all of that stuff. They're um, never, never, never two runs are the same ever. It is and right. Yeah. It yeah, is no, a revelation each time how your, how either your legs or your mind or the environment will always surprise you inevitably. There's always, there's always a story, isn't there? There's always some, some yeah. sort of journey, even if it's the most sort of benign easy run in the rubbish most horrendous weather there will always be something profound i think that, that comes out of it so when was as your sort of passion for running was developing then when was that when was this other pivot that was going to happen from sort of stepping away from menswear and then going into setting up your own your own running brand when was that when was that decision made or was it was it bubbling as you were starting to run were you sort of were you sort of having ideas about the gear that you were running in and not being happy with it? Was that where the sort of ideas were forming from? So there, there, was, there were a, a couple of moving parts. So, so the hard stop was my wife going, you're not doing fashion anymore because you're a hundred grand in debt. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, is a hard, that is a hard no. That is yeah. a hard no. With the better plans, that was probably the right answer at that time. You know, the fashion label was, it was absolutely classic. Uh, classic British, uh, you know, uh, uh, artisan designer. And I've seen it many times and I was absolutely a, a classic example where you have loads of press, you have loads of great doors, you know, amazing catwalk shows, no money. In fact, the reverse of no money, you know, negative money, massive negative money. But before that, I'd seen the launch of Rafa um, and my, my racing team buddy, a guy called Dominic Gavellini, was became the the direct sportive of the Rafa cycling team when it first launched. So I'd seen this brand and which was again, it was a bit like the boutique hotels, seen this brand going, this is something really different. This is never going to work, surely. When I was when I was racing on bikes, I was wearing Assos the whole time. No one's going to buy this weird retro inspired, you know, how the hell's that's going to work. But then seeing it really build and build and build, that was like, oh that's really interesting. And at the same time, my, my fashion label always had a, like a strong sportswear element in it. It was a kind of mix of tailoring and sportswear. So I'd always liked that aesthetic. Um, and I started running. And so I tried to persuade the marketing manager of Nike in the UK to let me design a running collection for them, which was never going to happen. And I just thought, oh, well, I'll just do it myself. Didn't really so did you that. did you approach Nike then? Was there, was, were there conversations and they, they just weren't having it? What was that sort of dialogue? That, yeah, that probably is, it makes it sound a bit, a bit more formal than it was. I knew the woman who was the marketing manager over here. And I, whenever I saw her, I get, went, let me do a collection. Go on, go on, I can do that. <laughs> and I think she was just stonewalling me, frankly. So, so, yeah, it was a very informal conversation. But I absolutely, you know, if she'd said, yeah, I would have completely have done it. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so the I suppose good in a way that that pushed you back to actually being, have, to then ultimately having something that you had complete ownership over, that there wouldn't have been those layers of filtration that you perhaps would have had with Nike that you maybe have encountered previously in your career, you were then able to have 
total ownership over this thing that you wanted to create. Totally so. And it wouldn't have been a good collection either, now knowing what I know about from Saw Running. It wouldn't have been good. It would have been, you know, it would have it would have been something, but it wouldn't have been good running clothing. So absolutely, you know, again, with 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 benefit of hindsight, that was a, a bullet dodged there. So yeah, the fashion label was winding down and I had a, a chance, well, it was a chance meeting, I had a family dinner uh, and my cousin was there, who's a financier in the city um, and a runner also uh, and a close family, obviously, because it's my cousin and we got talking uh, and he said, well, I'll finance a running brand if you want to set one up. So what I knew after my fashion label was I didn't want to self-finance because it, ironically, it makes you sloppy. Strangely enough, if you're spending your own cash, you're much sloppier than if you're spending someone else's cash. Mm. So I knew that I wanted it to be a properly funded business because then I could start how I wanted to go on. And also I'd, what I'd learned from the fashion business, I'd learned all the technical stuff by this stage. So I knew all the technical bits and I knew exactly where to start this time around. So I didn't have to have two or three seasons of learning the basic ropes. So that was really the birth of Saw Running. And I did a year of R&D testing kit, seeing what worked, what didn't work, where I thought the, the gaps were, um, looking for manufacturers, going to the Far East, looking at fabric, all of that stuff. That um, process of that, that year of R&D sounds fascinating. So we're... In terms of when you're thinking about, because I'm fascinated and, you know, in particular with, with Saw, it's your fabrics that are one of your USPs because of the, the sort of technical specification and the construction of these fabrics. So when you're in that R&D process, I mean, obviously you must have um, garnered a lot of information from being in the fashion industry. But when you were doing R&D, were you thinking like, I really want something that can wick away sweat, but it's also breathable, but maybe a bit waterproof? Where... where where do you go to find those fabrics? Like, what is that process? This is coming from someone who doesn't necessarily understand it. So, so please sure. f- fill me in. Cause I'm, I imagine this is probably a stupid question, but I find that fascinating. Like who do you call for those fabrics? The, the, the waterproof, the breathable, the antimicrobial, like what is that process? And what was your process for that year of R and D? So for the first year, I didn't, you know, I had no idea who the right manufacturers were, but I did have a very good sense from the fashion label of, what the right fabric for the job might feel like, if that makes sense. Mm. In the same way you know what the right fabric for some tailoring might feel like. I kind of knew what the right sort of fabrics might be and might feel like and might and how they might work. I just didn't know where to get them from. Um, so I did a lot of legwork and went to a lot of trade shows. Um, and actually it was obvious. You know, it was, I, I knew immediately that I saw the, the, the stands of the, the fabric manufacturers we worked with. I knew absolutely immediately these were the fabrics we needed to work, work with. And I guess that's because, as I said, I, I absorbed so much from doing fashion that I kind of knew what I wanted to change with the garment. I might have known the fabric, how to get the fabric at that stage, but I knew what I wanted to change with some shorts or tops or whatever. So when and I what did, was it, fabric, what was it that you wanted to change? Was it the sensation of wearing it or the, how yeah. it performed or, 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 or more? It was a combination of all those things and it depended on what the product was. Generally, I wanted to make everything lighter and, and feel lighter, if that makes sense. Not just physically lighter, but feel lighter when you wore it. Generally, I wanted to make things more breathable because breathability in winter kit, you know, it was particularly winter kit that was crap. 
when I was mm -hmm. testing other other manufacturers' products. Summer kit, you know, there's you can make gains, but those gains are relatively small. Winter kit, there's huge gains you can make. So I knew what I wanted to, you know, breathability and comfort issues. And also I've been doing a lot of cycling before that, and I've been wearing, you know, a lot of ASOS clothing, which is at that time was very good. I think it's gone a little bit off the boil, but at that time it was very good. So again, I kind of had an idea from cycling what might work in running. And I would say generally cycling was a bit ahead of running clothing at that time. Well, that, that's why I was going to ask, was there more of a, at that time, and, and there certainly is now, is there more of a, um, a focus on sort of real cutting edge kind of technology in terms of the clothes that they were wearing in, in cycling? Compared yeah, to... compared to running, absolutely. But we're we're bringing that to running. No, absolutely. So, so that process then. I mean, so you've, so were you secure in you were R and Ding? Were you also securing sort of your your first investors as well and your financing as well? Were you going out and were you were you pitching what you thought? saw was going to be to people and what were you presenting to people if you were doing that process in terms of you know acquiring funds and investors and stuff so the shorthand we used and i'm, I'm ashamed is the wrong word I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed to say i should say is with the raffer of running and in fact we're completely not the raffer of running with something very different which i'll maybe tell you in a minute but that was the shorthand we used with investors because the investors that our time knew what Rafa was and Rafa was at that point was was growing very rapidly so so that was how it was pitched to investors and to their credit you know a, a lot of people invested in or a number of people not a lot of people a number of people invested in something that was a very risky venture because it was new mm. um, and at the same time you know government uh, investment tax breaks means it is relatively easy and and tax effective to invest in startups. So that made it a bit easier as well. So that's how it was, that's how we pitched it initially. And that's probably, to be fair, that's probably kind of what I thought it was to start with. It wasn't, it's only really in the last three years that I've realized it was something quite different to run. And what was that journey to, to learning to what you think SOAR is now compared to what you thought it was when you launched back in, was it 2015 you launched, wasn't it? Yeah, 2015. So I, I thought I thought it was a running lifestyle brand, and it's not. It's a pure performance running product brand, um, and it's all about the product. Um, and if you have to rely on lifestyle, no, that's not fair. If you have to rely on lifestyle, a number of brands rely on lifestyle, and that's part of their story. And people can buy into that, and that's great. Soar is a pure product brand, and it happens to have, you know, a, a, a true and pure belief. In the, in the primacy of running at the core of it, but it's all about the product. Mm. And what was so, in terms of beginning with the product, so after you'd secured the fabric and you, you'd got all the patterns and you started testing, like the first time the product arrived in your hands, what was that like, that first seeing all of that hard work? Because what was, you had a year of R&D, then, then you started to finally get your hands on some of this kit that had been in your mind. What was, what was that like, that sensation? It was, oh shit, they've made all the t-shirts two sizes too large is what it was. <laughs> what? Rich? So, oh my God. So your first, so your first, first thing is the t-shirts just around, they were two sizes too big. I mean, two sizes too big. Because how does that happen? Fuck. 
that's what I said when it came up the box. <laughs> so, okay, I, when I said I knew everything, there were, there were a few things I was a little naive on. And mm. I, I'd assumed that the factories would automatically take into account uh, fabric shrinkage. And this factory for war, for whatever reason, they got the fabric shrinkage um, calculations wrong. They assumed the fabric was gonna shrink a bit when it's made, which normally it does, but they massively overestimated how much would trunk shrink. Now, now I'd have just sent the whole production back, but because this was, you know, our first launch, I couldn't really turn around to our investors and go, oh, well, actually, you know, we're not gonna launch with any t-shirts because yeah. so, so we had to, to do a bit of um, clever, you know, saying, if you like a more fitted T-shirt, take two sizes down. In the, so there was uh, a, a pivot <laughs> in the sort of copy that accompanied the product to sort of inform people, right? Exactly. I mean, the, the, the early products were good. Uh, and, and absolutely, I still use some of the early products. But I would say, realistically, it's not until you're, you know, three or four cycles of product in, that they really start to they really start to sing because you have to you know you really have to test products for a long long time and you have to live with products for a long long time to kind of understand the nuances of how you can improve them how you can make them better mm. um and all those kind of little marginal gains become cumulative and then you can make sort of more more large changes or more more impactful changes so i would see you know, the first two two or three production runs were good but during that time i was finding more about fabric manufacturer i was finding more factories i was finding limitations of what you couldn't couldn't do um so another one as well yeah another oh shit moment was <laughs> our first waterproof garments were were bonded um and i knew i wanted the garments to be bonded from from the get-go because it just so when you say stupid question alert when you say bonded what do you mean so the seams are glued i see um, as opposed to sewn Gotcha. And that gives you a waterproof seam. What I didn't know was that the seam bonding is stronger than the lamination of the waterproof fabric. A waterproof fabric is three layers glued together to make it waterproof. And so I put one of my, my gilets, lovely new posh gilets in the wash to give it a wash and it came out in pieces, basically. <laughs> so... Uh, like a little kit, back to the airfix models. It was exactly. a <laughs> How am I going to stick this one back together? Yeah. So, uh, so there's some rapid, uh, rapid copy changing saying, hand wash this garment, please. Mm. Uh, so yeah, you make a few mistakes and you, you refine the product. I'd love to know a little bit more about that cycle that you were talking about. When you talk about the cycle of, of, of the product sort of, you know, shipping out for its first order, how, what is that cycle? Where does the genesis come from? Where, where I, I, I can almost assume I think I know where your ideas for running kit come from, but where, where do those ideas sort of strike you? And then what is that process to people clicking on it on the website and getting it delivered to them, delivered to their doorstep? The truth is in the run. And we have a sign on the studio wall saying the run is the truth and truth is in the run. And so every garment I've ever designed has come from running. So, and, and that truth makes me realize that a lot of running clothing designers don't run very much because if they did, there would be a whole lot more running products out there, mm. basically. So, so I'll give you an example. So Tempo Top is a, it's a 
super niche garment. It was designed for running high intensity in cold weather, high intensity runs in cold weather. I just, it just occurred to me, well, of course, everyone is going to need a top for doing their tempo runs or their, their sessions in cold weather. And it better be close fitting because you're running fast and it better be super ergonomic because you're running fast and it better work next to the skin, but it better trap a little bit of heat as well. So that was the, the kind of the inspiration for the garment from running tempo runs in cold weather when it was really chilly. And then you've got to think about, you know, really what is the best fabric to achieve that? What is the best fabric that's going to be stretchy enough, but structural enough, but comfortable on the skin and wick sweat and trap a bit of heat. And I always start with the fabric. The fabric is, is the engine room of any garment you know, start with the fabric first and then think about what the fit's like. So with that garment, we I did a lot of testing with thin woven fabrics, but they were flat and they were okay until you got sweaty. And then they started to become quite clingy and quite uncomfortable. So then we had to go and look for a similar fabric, but with a kind of 3D structure to the weave. With a bit of toing and froing, we found a, a very thin fabric with 3D structure which wicks sweat, but also as a kind of byproduct, it trapped a little bit of air. So it gave you a bit of warmth as well. So it, it kind of ticked those two boxes at once. Then we pattern cut it so that the pattern cut for that garment is, is quite unusual. It's called, it's, it's a semi-raglan sleeve. And that gives you a very, so in tailoring, tailoring, the, it's all about the armhole in tailoring. If you've got a really good armhole, that gives you a really good fitted garment. And it's the same in running garments. It's all about the armhole in tops. So when you, you say armhole, what do you mean exactly? The fit of the armhole of the garment. Oh, I see, I so see, if, I see. So if you want a garment that has lots of mobility in it and is close fitting but comfortable, you have to design in the armhole and getting that right is that's that's where all the work is, basically. And so designing this garment with a semi-raglan sleeve gave you a very comfortable, close fitting armhole, which meant the rest of the garment could be close fitting without being restrictive, combined with this woven fabric with this kind of 3d weave to it makes it a super comfortable garment that's very light and exactly doing the job it was designed to do which is running sessions and and tempo runs in cold weather the next part of that is communicating that to your customer because there wasn't really a product like that on the market before so and that can be slow you know definitely we have some products and the tempo top was one it can it can It'll sit on the site for you know 12 months really before it starts to get traction and i think you know there's a few reasons for that it's not cheap and people need to think about spending their money rightly so so they need to consider it a bit and it's a new class of product if you like so they've got to think about that a bit and they've got to be quite committed runners because they've got to want to run tempo runs and interval sessions in cold weather yeah so that's already you know a fairly committed runner so so all of those things i kind of think filter down the funnel of potential customers but then when people do get it they'll realize that you have a kind of mindset about how you approach a running product which means they'll feel very confident about buying other products from you mm. so i see those i see our most niche products as the products which are you know the real gateways into the rest of the brand because if you understand why they work then you can then you can have confidence that the more simple garments are going to work as well. And you describe and your your products very much are premium in their price point and in how they are pitched to the people who are potentially buying them. And I think 
Were you worried when you were starting out the business that you thought in, you know, when you're competing with the the kind of the big behemoths of, of running clothing that you might potentially shoot yourself in the foot doing that by sort of pricing them at too, too high a thing? Or did you feel like because of the, 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 the technicality of the fabric and, and the, the real considered design that was going into that warranted and justified and rightly so having run in some of your garments, the, the price that, that you charge for them? Well, I was coming from selling thousand quid suits. So to me, this was like all... <laughs> <laughs> it's all 100 stupid. quid's a bargain it's a bargain <laughs> but uh really so it's it's a question we you know we discuss in the office a lot and as, at first i didn't really think about it as i said i came from fashion which everything was crazily expensive so it didn't seem expensive in the big scheme of things and as i said you know when a cyclist i'd always been buying assos clothing which was a similar sort of price point but now when we 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 really think about it that's what the products cost and we don't make a huge margin on them compared to your 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 mainstream manufacturers your nikes your adidas the margin we make is is far less than they'll make on a product because we're selling direct to consumer so we don't have a, a kind of double wholesale margin then no, a no, retail margin mm. those are what they cost i want to make the best possible running gear i can make and to make the best possible running gear gear i can make that's what it costs mm. um and there's plenty of cheap options out there for people that, that want to buy it. And that's absolutely fine with me. Um, and I also think that, and the other part of that is, and you know, it's, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think it's also true in a, in a era where there's far too much cheap crap around, I'd much rather be selling a high quality product that's absolutely fit for purpose rather than a cheap throwaway product. And that's mm. part of the we never discount we don't discount for exactly that reason we're not in the business of pumping out stuff for the sake of it on cheap margins for a discount rather on a discount model and i think that's interesting as well to to think of and especially because of the kind of people you know that perhaps you're pitching your products at people who are maybe a bit more serious about their running to think of your running wardrobe in the same way as perhaps a stylist would think of a male wardrobe as you have your pieces don't you you have your set yeah, yeah. pieces you know your your maybe a lovely a jacket a suit or, or whatever that you wear for specific occasions formal or informal but if you're a runner you you kind of have that mindset to your kit or maybe perhaps you should or there's an argument for having that mindset towards your running kit that you have your winter training gear you have your your tights for speed sessions or you have your race shorts and your race or your race singlet and those are your key pieces that are part of your arsenal as as a runner that you deploy at specific times for uh, specific occasions so i think there is there is a match in that and i i think with the with the price thing i think people value what they pay for and if they're paying for a premium thing and if it is a good quality thing i think people will feel justified and i think the idea of having something that will last i will always pay through the nose for something that that i think is going to go the distance and 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 will last and there is value and there is a real um i think that's a real a fantastic thing to have i think like a big believer in brands that have like you have you'll have your 100 mile um promise that comes with a product i think if a product can vouch for itself by having an insane guarantee like that i think it's something worth at least considering don't get me wrong like you don't want to say like you can't buy you know cheap running clothes or whatever else but i think there is 
there's definite value in 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 what saw is is bringing to the to the running market and how do you see yourself in in the running market do you do you see yourself as an underdog or do you feel like you sort of stand apart from the other kind of running brands um that's an interesting question so i would say we have the opportunity uh, and you know we could always crash it into the wall next week but let's hope we don't we have the opportunity <laughs> come on tim come on <laughs> to make the best running kit on the market bar none and the reason for that is because the big brands don't even sell their elite running kit you know there's no nike vaporfly clothing they don't they don't sell their elite clothing um so the and you know God, maybe they're going to start selling when they hear this <laughs> so so None of the brands offer their elite kit, uh, as as far as I know, to everyday runners. They don't retail mm. it. So mm. there's that fact. And then the second fact is, you know, for all of the big manufacturers, shoes is where they're making the money, head and shoulders shoes. And, and apparel's a tiny portion of that. Now, if we can be a small apparel specialist, that can still be a very big business. I, I really genuinely think we can make the best of running apparel on the market. And I think as well, there's there's less of a focus with apparel and performance from the other brands as well. Like you have, like Nike, obviously, it's the Vaporfly, the Alphafly, all of, it seems anyway, the all of the R&D and the sweat goes into the, what's on the feet and kind of everything from the knee upwards is 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 kind of an afterthought. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Or if it isn't an afterthought, we don't know because they're never selling it. Mm. So, and I think, you know, that that kit can definitely, and we're working on some products at the moment, which are lab measurable, which will have lab, me- lab measurable effects on performance. So I think there's definitely stuff you can do, which will have an effect on performance. Um, can you, can you talk a, a little bit about what those products are? Is that sort of under NDA kind of, uh, talk about it kind of thing? It, it, well, it's a lot about temperature regulation basically don't, don't really want to talk much more about it than no, that. No, 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 no. That just, it just sounds really with, with this, with this, um, uh, approach, but I think there's, there's definitely areas around that where you can, where you can make an, have an impact. I think aero is a hundred percent going to become much more of a thing. I would, I would be very surprised in, in five years, if everyone, uh, from, you know, cross-country races from elite level, certainly, to, you know, 10,000 metres and 5,000 metres, everyone isn't running in a skin suit because why wouldn't you want to be more aero? And that skin suit's going to be dimpled because why wouldn't you if you can do it? Mm. Uh, Because it's going to make a small impact. And, you know, even if it's two or three seconds, well, we all know how much training it takes to, you know, to to get a PB of even a few seconds. So there's definitely stuff that can be done with apparel. And, and the other thing, which is which is on a kind of more uh, kind of you know profound level as a runner, I spend hours and hours and hours of my life running, and it's freaking hard sometimes. And you graft, you know, you really got to graft if you want to improve. You've really got to graft, and that's true with all runners. However, anyone who's doing structured training, you're grafting at some point, and so you've put that emotional and physical commitment and time commitment into doing this thing. So why wouldn't you want someone to offer you the best possible kit to do that in? Um, Because 
it's a really important part of your life. Um, so, so that's also part of the, the mindset of the reason why I think um, you know we're unashamedly about producing the best kit we possibly can. And absolutely, like I mean, you know, we talk talk about. Um, I was talking to another guest about Strava and the metrics that Strava shows you, and it also shows you the amount of hours that you've spent training in a week, as well as your mileage. And obviously, the mileage yeah. is often a good indicator. But you know, you look in a heavy block, and you're spending eight, nine hours. Yeah. You know, a week. That's a full working day. It is. You know, that's a nine to five shift. And you're putting and you are. People are putting in, you can I'm sure you can attest, and people listening can attest. You put in some serious shifts during a week, two sessions, a long run, whatever it is. You want to be in something that's comfortable. And you know, especially over the marathon distance, something a minor niggle on a seam at mile two can become an albatross around your neck by mile 22. So it's, it's important to be in something that you enjoy ah, being in. I have got something I can show you. Brent, talking about marathons. Wow. Ooh, oh, oh gosh. New and exclusive. Oh, go on. So for people listening, Tim has just disappeared off into the background to get something. I imagine from like all the people in lab coats and uh, with, uh, with all the lab gear testing all the latest kit so this is uh, these are launching so i can tell you because these are launching next month so marathon specific short um so shell but it's not written not all of that so the shell is super it's like super sheer super fantastic lots of gel pockets gel pockets Uh, fantastic but the real the money in the product is in the liner. Um, and that's obviously if you're running long miles, you need a super comfortable liner. So this liner is, has been built from the ground up and it's really different to a normal liner where you have in a normal liner, you have the kind of gathering on the leg, on the, mm-hmm. on the hem there and, mm-hmm. and the fit is controlled by that gathering. Mm-hmm. And so that elastic gathering on the hem needs to be reasonably tight to control the fit of the liner, which is the classic cause of chafing, et cetera, et cetera. So this liner is a shaped liner, unlike normal liners. So it's got like a, a it's got like a cup for the, your tackle. Mm-hmm. And then, which means you have to have much less tension around the leg opening. And that means you can bond the front leg opening seam. So it's super flat. So you've got none of that. Normally on a shorts, you have like a sewn. Oh, oh yeah. No, they catch me out all the time. It's serious on a long run. It's a serious point of, of irritation. So it's just totally flat because you've got the shaping at the front. You can have that. And the fabric is infused with aloe vera. So it's uh, a bollock lube is our technical. Uh, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that's insane. So, yeah. So where are they putting the aloe vera? Is that a point of manufacture? They're infusing yes, the fabric. The yeah, into the arm, yeah. And how does that stay within the fabric then? Because obviously those, I mean, if you're going to be doing 26 miles on them, they're going to go straight in the wash. How is yeah. the, how so, is the aloe vera? So they've, been, they've been pretty durable. I've been testing a pair for, I mean, the, the construction is totally durable. The, 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 the aloe vera um, fabric the manufacturer claims it has good durability and I've been running them all summer and they still feel just as smooth and plush as the day I've uh, put them on. Oh, wow. I mean, if ever there was a USP for a product, I mean, aloe vera infused fabric. Wow. So how are so, they, 
that's fascinating. So I'm just I'm I'm still thinking about aloe vera infused fabric. How are they putting that in to it at a sort of molecular level? How does that work? I will, will ask the question and come back to you. <laughs> so well, that, do- that was a great example of seeing a product going. Well, that's really interesting. I can't possibly think what we'd want to use that for. And this was at the time when we were. I was developing. Uh, we went through. Loads, so many liner prototypes trying to get the liner fit right so we mm. could take all the pressure away from the edge of the uh, you know the edge of your groin and then there was this kind of light, light bulb moment just going that's what we want the aloe vera fabric for <laughs> so i mean and so as as these products develop and as you you do these these new innovations the aloe vera fabric and, and thinking about the lining how how have how have you developed as an athlete and has the progression of SOAR and its its kind of grow its growth as a company and as a running brand and its products, how has that bled into your progression as an athlete as well? Like have has it sort of inspired you to go further? Like what what are your distances? Are you are you a marathon? Are you a marathon man or are you are you a shorter, faster kind of guy? Oh, don't, don't want to do that to my body. So half marathon uh down to well, I do some Cross country, love cross country, mm. five, 10K, a little bit of track. So sort of half marathon down really. Um, so I, I certainly run more than I've ever run in my life. Um, so I do I don't know, 50 or 60 miles a week, something like that. I'm not getting any, not getting much faster, but I'm quite a lot older than I was when I started. <laughs> so for age graded, I'm, my age grade is improving a lot. Let's put it that way. And really through lockdown, I think probably true with a lot of people, either, either seem to go two ways with people, either they kind of, they lost their mojo because there were no races or they really upped the miles. So since lockdown, I haven't really done any speed work. It's all been about getting miles in, tempo runs and long kind of marathon paced runs as well. And that seems to have brought my fitness on a lot. So, so I'm, I'm feeling very fit at the moment. So when races do start, and I've just gone up an age category as well. So I'll be in a new age cap, which should hopefully put me in a, in a competitive place for the next year or two. Yeah, I'm looking forward to get stuck in. I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting that it's a bit like a product. You know, you have your, your running fitness is, you know, there's a lot of gains to make initially. So much like when we're doing initial products, you could lots of low hanging fruit. And then it's just a question of chiseling away seconds off here and there. And, and you know, you get to a certain point in your running career that you realize you're not going to transform overnight. You've just got to graft. If you want to get better, you've just really got to put the work in basically. Um, so I'm putting the work in right now. Fantastic. And what, where do you think the work is going to take Saw in the next five years? Do you think, where do you think, where would, where do you see it going? Where do you see the company progressing to in the next five years? Well, I'd like to, there's a few things. I, I really, I think, you know, the UK is really unique with its club running scene. And there's a lot that's, how can I put this nicely? There's a lot that could do with freshening up, freshening up in the club running scene, shall we say, in a nice way. But it's this brilliant thing and it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And it's this absolutely, you know, it's this complete, uh, you know, uh, asset we have on our own doorstep. So, and I was very adamant with saw from the get-go that the the people i wanted to work with you know i was i was kind of when i first started running and it was all about you know olympic athletes and what and etc etc 
they weren't the runners I related to. The runners I related to were the people who were 100 yards up the road, you know, at the local 10K. Those are the people I wanted to, to beat and wanted to, yeah. to engage with as a brand. So I was, I was adamant that there had to be this kind of grassroots element to the brand. And club running is, is absolutely that in spades. So we do a lot of bespoke saw race vests for clubs now. I think we've got 35, perhaps more, more so clubs now running in saw race vests. And I'd like to engage more with clubs as well. At the same time, I also would like to act as a bit of a bridge between the more kind of crew-based running, if you like, which is definitely a big thing in, in, in the urban world. And I think there's a lot of very committed runners who don't feel like club running is for them. And mm. I understand why. So I think there's something interesting in being somewhere in the middle of those two places. Product-wise, so much to come. I mean, we've only really just started developing our own unique fabrics that are, that are totally unique to us. And that's going to go on. We've got this new area we're looking at into temperature regulation. We'll be spending much more time in wind tunnels and in labs over the next few years, you know, and launching women's again, I would think probably, hopefully spring summer 22 women's will launch. And then that's a whole new world of more stuff, uh, very different. So I won't be developing that. There will be a woman developing that because I can't develop it because I'm a man, if you like. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots more to come. So exciting! And for you personally as a runner, are there PBs that you're hoping to sort of smash? Are there are there races that you particularly got your eye on next year? Are you know obviously COVID dependent and and everything going ahead? So well, I was I was hoping you know cross cross country. I was hoping I was feeling good for this season. I was hoping to be you know in the top five for my for my age cat in the Met League, uh, you know averaging that. And I certainly should have been able to do that relatively easily. I'd certainly smash my half marathon PB if I ran one today because I'm beating it in training at the moment. So there's nothing, there's no, nothing really specifically, just like any runner, you know, any, any race I'm in, I'm, I'm in, I'd like to beat, beat my PB. But I'm also aware that that can be, that can also be, I think that can stop a lot of runners from racing the idea that you have to be fit enough to beat the PB before you you go racing. Mm. And cycling's not like that. And cycling, you just turn up and you go racing. And, you know, some days, to, to quote Geraint, some days you're the hammer, some days you're the nail. Um, and, you know, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to do, having missed it this year, I'd like to do quite a lot more running and not worry quite so much about whether you're in great shape or not, but just go in and get stuck in, basically. And that is a, a brilliant note to end our conversation on, just going out there and getting stuck in. Tim, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me and for telling us all about your career and all about sore running and being a guest on The Big Run. Thank you so much. A pleasure. A big thank you to Tim for taking the time to chat there and a sneak preview of a new product coming out soon. And I do not doubt for a second that Saw is going to be pushing the boundaries in terms of some of the other things they've got up their sleeve in the next year or two. Next week on The Big Run. And I, this, this year on two knee replacements uh, and at 81, I was running 25 minutes for 5k. Unbelievable story from an unbelievable guest coming up next week on The Big Run. 
As always, you can follow us on Twitter at The Big Room Pod or on Instagram at The Big Room Podcast. And you can follow my very slow return to running on Instagram at Danny Runsome. And as always, if you're able to, get out there and get running. <laughs>